Well, hello. Welcome to the Anthem Daily Podcast. My name is Bert Alcorn. Today is Tuesday, May 26. Welcome back after a long weekend. Hope you enjoyed uh, that extended weekend. Uh... To me, it just felt like another day. <laughs> I don't know if you guys feel the same way. Maybe you're like remote working or whatever, and it just feels like, oh, this is just another day. It doesn't quite feel like that extra long weekend we are we are used to. But anyway, I'm, I'm glad you're back. We did take a day off the podcast, uh, so I'm stoked that you were back with us. We're in the middle of the series on this podcast, all trying to... Um, really understand uh, how Christians could and should engage in politics and culture. And we started from this baseline reminder that Christians are exiles. This is not our ultimate home. Our identity, our citizenship is is actually found elsewhere. It's found, it's hidden in Christ. It's with Jesus. It's in heaven to use Philippians 3 language, but we are here for a season. So how do we actually engage, live life, uh, enter the political sphere while we're here? And what we did was after I, you know, first by establishing the reality that we're exiles, We had to say, well, how do we actually do this? And we have these three guiding principles, these guardrails, if you will, for how Christians should engage in politics and culture. And the first guardrail is with eschatological hope, meaning our hope is in Jesus, not in a candidate or a judge or a law or a political system or whatever. The second guiding principle is we do it with humble conviction, that it's our conviction that should be heard and our humility that should be felt. And one without the other does not get the job done. And third, as a provocative countercultural community of alternative promise, which means the way we live our lives should actually um, like provide an alternative promise of the good life for people. And it should be countercultural and provocative. It should go against the grain of this world and this culture, and it should actually provoke people to ask you in the language of 1 Peter 3, like, why? And and we would have then a defense for the hope that we actually have. And then what we did, and, and this is where we're at right now. So we start with the why, because Christians are exiles. We started with how, with eschatological hope, humble conviction, and as a provocative countercultural community of alternative promise. And then we have been unpacking what this looks like. We started with a vision of love, then talked about what it means to be non-abrasive and have gracious conversation, which means stay off Facebook. Do it. Stay off. Quit engaging in these political conversations on Facebook. In the best case scenarios, we lack empathy and humanity. In the worst case scenarios, Christians look awful. Cut it out. Stop talking about politics on social media. If you want to talk with someone, call them up or have an in-person conversation where you can look into their eyes, feel their humanity, know and recognize that they are human made in the image of God's image. and We can have gracious conversation. Quit picking Twitter fights and Facebook fights. So not abrasive, grace of conversation. And third, where we ended last week was a cultural sophistication about the complexity and nuance around issues, which means issues are not black and white. Um, and there's never a simple non-layered answer or response. There's always more beneath the surface. And as Christians, we should be the best at, at looking below the layers and trying to pick apart all the different pieces and live in the tension and sort through the tension, not just look for the 
the easy out, but to know that every issue has a dozen rabbit holes that you can chase down and every issue has layers and complexity and nuance around it. Now, what we are talking about today, today is another what this looks like. And number four is we are theologically conservative, theologically conservative. Now, this has two different aspects that I'm going to pick apart. And the first one is this idea of biblical literacy. And and the idea that engaging with people far from God or people who disagree with us does not mean we sacrifice truth, right? It's this false dichotomy between grace and truth. You can only have one or the other. And so you have people who are like, well, I'm just all about grace. And so I never actually say hard things and, and confront people or share my deep conviction, and then you have people that are on the true side was like, I just have to tell the truth no matter what. And, and how they receive it is, is their problem, right? <laughs> and neither are great postures by themselves. We need both together, grace and truth together. And what I love is, is Jesus had this uncanny way of interacting with the farthest people from God, the farthest people from religion, speaking hard truths to them. And they love him for it. And there's this great story in the book of John chapter four. I want to read and it's a little long, so I'm actually not going to make too many comments on it. But what I, I want you to pick apart is, is Jesus's interaction with someone he should not be interacting with. If he's a good Jewish boy, he should not be interacting with this person. Notice he pulls no punches in the truth that he speaks And he is incredibly gracious at the same time. And notice the response, how this person who interacts with Jesus, how do they respond? And I think genuinely, if we open ourselves up to the truth of John chapter four, I don't need to make too many comments about it. I'll just read the story. Let the Holy Spirit work. John chapter four, starting in verse one, we'll go through verse 29. Now, when Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So where he's at, he has to pass through this town that was uh, taboo for the Jewish people. He had to pass through Samaria and he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Verse seven, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Verse eight, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So it's just Jesus and this gal here. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for me a a drink, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria, Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samarians. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is and who that is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself as, as did his sons and livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Uh, But we know Jesus is talking about something different, right? Verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. That water that I give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or come here to draw water. Like she's like, this sounds great. Let's do this. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. This is a seemingly benign phrase, but notice what happens in verse 17. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now, notice Jesus interacting with someone he should not have had as a good Jewish rabbi. And notice that he did not pull any punches. He knows that she has been living in sin. And her response and and their interaction is not contentious. It's not aggressive, but he shares truth in in such a way that is gracious and inviting. And, And her response is to then go and bring others to Christ. So engaging with people far from God doesn't mean we sacrifice truth, but it means we share truth in a way that leads them to Jesus. Like our, our grace is felt. It's kind of the same idea of, is this idea of humble conviction, that our conviction is heard and our humility is felt, is how we are interacting with people and sharing truth gracious enough to where it leads them to Jesus, or is it just sharing truth and being a jerk about it? Now, that's the first angle I want to look at, the the theologically conservative idea that just because we are gracious does not mean we sacrifice truth. Now, the second angle on this idea of theological conservativeness, number two here is we are formed first by God and his word and prayer, worship, and the study of scripture. Then we can decipher the world around us. Many, many Christians flip this and have it backwards that they try to decipher the world around them, come up with thoughts, ideas, opinions, or whatever, and then read that back into scripture. Now, this is actually, I'm going to get nerdy for you, nerdy with you for just a second. In in Bible college, in seminary, in, in any kind of Christian college where there's a kind of how to study the Bible course, there's always a moment where you have to differentiate between these two ideas, exegesis and eisegesis. And it's really simple. It's really simple. These kind of fancier words are really simple ideas. Exegesis is letting the text speak for itself and then informing all sorts of things. Eisegesis is reading back our worldview, baggage, bias, opinions, thoughts into scripture and making it say anything we want. Have you ever noticed 
that it seems like people can make the Bible say anything they want it to say. Or is that just me? It, it seems like all kinds of crazy people will use the Bible to justify all sorts of crazy things. Now, that sounds crazy when we talk about the big stuff, maybe like slavery or something like that. But how often do we do that same thing ourselves? Do we experience the same problem of reading our own opinions, biases, worldview, thoughts, ideas into scripture? And so when we, and so what happens is we either twist the text to make it say what we want to say, or our opinions come into contrast with scripture. And then we go, ah, scripture has to be wrong. And so when we read of something like a Christian sexual ethic uh, from Jesus, and we think God is uh, like a cruel person, he doesn't have our best in mind, or at least he's a killjoy. Or when we read of these calls to care for the poor and support the work of those in ministry and, and the church and in mission, we can think God can't really mean it. I'm a, I'm a better judge of how to use my money. Or when we, when we read that we need to be slaves of Christ, slaves of righteousness, submit to God as our master. And we think that doesn't really sound like the God of America that I know. Like God just wants me to be happy and free and have liberty. And, and we're supposed to be free, like life, liberty, pursuit of my own happiness, Right. And so we read our ideas, our biases, our worldviews into the text and our, and our worldview and our view of culture into the text. And we either twist scripture to make it say what we want it to say, or we come into contrast with scripture and assume scripture is irrelevant. It's outdated. It's wrong, whatever. And really that the solution is to flip that back on its head is to let the scriptures speak into our worldview, biases, opinions, thoughts, ideas then we can decipher the world around us. We have to be formed first by God and his word in prayer, worship, and study of the scripture. In his little book, Unbreakable, writer, author, pastor, Andrew Wilson says this. He says, since God has spoken through scripture, then any argument that leads to the conclusion that scripture is broken in some way, no matter how convincing it sounds, must be wrong. End of story. That's hugely challenging. Many of us, when faced with a biblical difficulty, and there are plenty of those, he says, conclude that scriptures are broken. Maybe this didn't really happen. Maybe really God didn't really say that. And hardly a day goes past without some Christian somewhere apologizing for something the Bible says and muttering something about being a human book complete with muddles and mistakes. But If the scriptures are the unbreakable word of God, as Jesus seems to have thought they were, then a different approach is needed. Maybe it's my interpretation or my assumptions that need challenging. Maybe there's something I don't know. Maybe the answer is in there and I just need to look a bit harder. Maybe I'm the one who's broken rather than the Bible, end quote. That's a hugely convicting and challenging quote for even me to, to wrestle with. But we have to trust what Paul says in, in 2 Timothy 3, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I love that text because it leaves out any wiggle room for us to explain away different parts of, of the text. And it's profitable for all sorts of things. Like teaching doctrine shows us the path that we walk on. So teaching gives us the vision for where we are going, the vision for obedience, the vision for life. Reproof 
shows us where we get off the path. It shows us where we where like our, our foot is starting to slide off the pathway. Correction shows us how to get back on the path. And instruction and righteousness shows us how to stay on the path. It's profitable for, for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Teaching shows us the path to walk on. Reproof shows us when, where we get off the path. Correction shows us how to get back on, and instructions and righteousness shows us how to stay on the path. We are formed first by God and his word and prayer, worship and study of scripture to stay on the path that he has had us. He forms us. We go to him first and we are formed by him. Then we can decipher the world around us. Now we trust the Bible because we trust Jesus. And it's a and it's a beautiful relationship. We don't trust Jesus because we trust the Bible. We, we have been deeply affected by him first. We are shaped and, and formed by him. And then that leads us to a certain view of scripture. A view that takes scripture at its word, that it's, it's authoritative for us and our lives are shaped around it. And there's... There's no legitimate version of an apprenticeship to Jesus that does not read the Bible and and read the Bible as central and authoritative scripture for you and I today. Andrew Wilson in that same book says this, quote, ultimately our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ, the man who is God, the king of the world, the crucified, risen, exalted rescuer. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him and I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too, even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. So why why do we follow the Bible? Why are we theologically conservative? Meaning we don't take great liberties with what the text is saying, but we actually go to the text and let that shape us. Well, it's because we follow Jesus. He is our authority and he has mediated his authority through the Bible and on its pages, we discover the way to life that Jesus has extended to us. Okay, so a couple of maybe next steps or questions for you to think about today. First, in in this idea, the first idea that we're unpacking around biblical literacy and engaging with people far from God doesn't mean we sacrifice truth if you were to look at grace and truth on a scale, grace being on one end, truth being on the other end, where are you on that scale? And obviously, since I'm advocating for the middle ground here, what's a step you can take to move towards the middle? So if you're way on the truth side, Facebook, ranty, Bible thumper, truth side, where do you maybe need to come towards the middle and extend some grace? If you're way on the grace side and a little bit softer and it's hard to be honest and share hard things, like where do you come towards truth? Like how can you take a step towards the middle? And with the second idea that we are formed first by God and his word and prayer, worship and study of the scripture, um, I have two next steps for you. And if you've been tracking along with the podcast, one that will be very familiar with you is commit to a rule of life that has Bible before phone each and every day or Bible before computer or email or newspaper or whatever your thing is, but to actually start 
by going to God in scripture and in a moment of silence and letting him form you, then get into your phone, your computer, your email, whatever you have for the day. That's one. And second is commit to a Bible reading plan. Doesn't have to be that you you do not have to read the whole Bible in one year. You don't have to get crazy with it. I have a I have a pretty regular routine uh, in my Bible reading plan, and uh, and I'll overlay other plans on top. But my baseline plan is I every single day I read five Psalms and one proverb every day, and so every month I'm going through all the Proverbs and all the Psalms every single month I'm repeating. And sometimes I'll overlay reading plans or study on top of that, but that's my very baseline. And so, I mean, if you want to read through the Bible in a year, awesome, go for it. But start with just a baseline, simple, reproducible, sustainable plan that you can implement into your life. So where are you on the grace truth scale and where can you take some steps towards the middle? And in this idea of being shaped by God first is commit to Bible before phone. Let his voice be the first that you hear and commit to a Bible reading plan, something sustainable, reproducible that you can come back to in a daily way to be in God's word. That's it for today. Thanks for listening to the Anthem Daily Podcast and we'll be back tomorrow with another episode.